Good morning. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. Welcome. Before I hand over to Kirsty Lang, I thought I would just tell you very briefly, uh, as if you don't know already why we're here, we think that it's a good idea to discuss pressing issues of the day with a mixture of policymakers, opinion formers, and uh, practitioners, shall we say, in whatever field it is we're discussing. Uh, in the words that seem to have occurred rather a lot in the national press, especially the FT this week, we tend to mix it up, which I thought was language for hip-hop albums, but is apparently now common parlance. So here we are this morning mixing it up. When we don't do this, editorial intelligence is um, tracking and monitoring every word, literally, of opinion page comment published in the UK in order to best track and analyse really how opinion is shaped and formed and later on this year we'll be publishing some research that really tries to lay out exactly how public policy is directly or is it influenced by what we call the commentariat and uh, we're more than happy to promote that to you shamelessly on another occasion. I'd really like to thank the Daily Telegraph and YouGov for partnering with us on this And I'd particularly like to thank uh, Sally Chatterton from the Daily Telegraph who has put in an enormous amount of time personally shaping this uh, programme with us and also our own Caroline Fielding who has, uh, as you know, I don't think there's anyone quite as efficient as Caroline in making sure you're all here and on time. For those of us with small children, it is, of course, basically midday, but for everybody else, really appreciate the effort in getting up here so early. Um, This event is, of course, live, and it is on the record, and it is being podcast, and it is also being blogged. So there is absolutely no respite for any of you, uh, should you cough or whisper or utter a remark. And I'm now going to hand over to Kirsty, who is going to introduce almost all the panel apart from Ed Vasey who's stuck on a tube and will be here in a moment. Thank you. Thanks Julia and hello and welcome to um, I think it's uh, one of the series of the Insight Club events um, which is run by Editorial Intelligence in association with partners, in this case the Daily Telegraph and YouGov and uh, obviously the aim of it is to provide you with insight into a key event the key event this time being the fact that one week from now Gordon Brown will be Prime Minister. And what we're here to discuss today is whether his main opponent, David Cameron uh, and the Conservative Party, of course, have a chance of beating him. Um, Peter Kelman is going to be giving us some detail on the recent polling, um, but uh, suffice to say um, that recent polls seem to indicate that at present um, the Conservative leader of Labour is shrinking, so uh, is it temporary? Is this the brown bounce, or are we seeing a backlash uh, against the, uh, over the grammar school row, um, which uh, even a poll on the uh, Conservative home website showed had badly dented Cameron's personal ratings, which uh, dropped on that from plus 49 to plus 24 in 10 days. Um, uh, as for the... Uh, uh, the commentariat, as editorial intelligence like to uh, refer to uh, uh, comment writers, uh, apparently, according to the intelligence, uh, according to research that they've done, all mentions uh, by commentators of Gordon Brown now outstrip David Cameron by a margin of two to one. Although interesting, mentions by columnists of the Conservative or Labour parties is about the same. Um, 
<coughs> sorry. I think one of the key issues we're also going to discuss today is, of course, the centre ground. And um, commentators seem very split on this. Um, positioning by the Conservatives uh, is two copycat of Tony Blair, according to some commentators. According to others, it's the only way for Cameron to survive. Um, and clearly this is uh, going to be one of the things we're going to be talking about. Anyway, um, let's move on to the event itself. That's enough of me. As uh, Julia said, um, it's all on the record, recorded, and it's going to be podcast. Um, can you also turn off your mobiles if you haven't so far? The format is going to be that each of the speakers will speak for a maximum of five minutes. Um, I should just mention that Ed Vasey is running late, so if you see him hopping onto the uh, platform a bit later, he is on his way, apparently stuck on the district line. Nice to know uh, that he's taking the tube. Um, Okay, well, look, I'm going to introduce the speakers one by one. Let me start with our first speaker, uh, Simon Heffer. Um, Simon is a former parliamentary sketch writer who is one of Britain's best-known commentators. A member of the club Editorial Intelligence uh, has branded the commentariat. Um, An avid historian of books on subjects ranging from Thomas Carlyle to Enoch Powell. In 2005, he moved his trenchant opinions from the Daily Mail back to the Daily Telegraph as associate editor and columnist, having originally joined the Telegraph in 1986. In 2006, he began a column by declaring, apparently, a badge of honour for the new leadership of the Conservative Party is to be criticised by a group of enemy columnists, of which I am one. Simon. Uh, Kirsty, thank you for that charming introduction. Um, The motion, or the subject to which I'm speaking this morning, is, of course, sensible of more than one interpretation. Uh, It's perfectly feasible for uh, a leader of a party to get his party into shape and lose an election, ask Hugh Gates School to an extent in 1959. It's also possible for um, a leader of a party not to get his party anything like into shape, but still win an election because of the inadequacies of his opponents. Um, This happened in 2005, we'll all remember that. It also happened in 1992. Probably the last time an opposition did it was February 1974. So Dave has got quite a hill to climb. I want to deal with the problem I think he's got, because I don't think he is going to win the election. I want to deal with the problem that he's got under four headings. The first of these is cephalogical, and I speak uh, on this subject with great trepidation and and due deference to Mr. Kellner, who's who's up next, uh, because I'm merely an amateur in in a world in which he is a great professional. But as you are aware, there are 646 seats in the House of Commons, and so uh, a party that wishes to have a, a working majority has to win 324 of them. The Conservative Party currently has 198, so it is a massive hill to climb, if you'll forgive a cliché at this hour of the morning. This takes me on to my second point, which is organisational. The Conservative Party doesn't exist in large stretches of the United Kingdom. It barely exists in Scotland. It's got a minimal presence in Wales. But worse than that, I think, from their point of view, there are large stretches of urban England in which they are irrelevant, There are even parts of rural England where, because the party feels alienated by the present leadership, uh, they are having trouble getting together a a decent committee, or at least a committee of people who don't require Zimmer frames and wheelchairs to get to committee meetings. So they have a great problem in in that sense. If you try and join the Conservative Party in places like Manchester or Birmingham, you're normally referred to London. And I know that they claim quite recently that they had a great electoral triumph in the local elections. But it really isn't true. They did incredibly well in their heartland. 
and they won the odd seat in the north of England and, and other places outside the heartland, or the odd council. Um, but in areas like Chester, which are really the south of England transported to the north, the next problem that they've got is oppositional. Uh, the Labour Party has been fighting itself for the last two years since uh, Blair won his third election victory. And they are battle-hardened. The trouble is, for the Conservative Party, they're about to turn their battle training onto the traditional opposition, which is not themselves, of course, but the Conservative Party. I don't have a great regard for Gordon Brown's policies, but I have a certain regard for his political experience uh, and his cunning and his ruthlessness. This is a man who is patently driven, who has not waited ten years to become Prime Minister in order to hold that office for only a year or two. And I think that from next Wednesday, when he becomes Prime Minister, the Conservative Party is not going to have any notion of what has hit it. Uh, I think many people will be saying, um, is this really what Brown was like all along? Because I think he's going to demonstrate uh, a clarity of purpose and a severity of purpose that we haven't really even seen uh, while he's been at the Treasury. There's also the matter of the Liberal Democrats. Now, if um, uh, they can spare um, uh, Mr. Clegg from being Home Secretary in, uh, in Gordon Brown's government, which I'm told is going to happen uh, by the Guardian, so it may be true, um, and he were to become their leader, uh, and there's much speculation about this, I don't wish to embarrass him, but uh, he knows that as well as I do, then the Liberal Democrats are going to be radically transformed as a, as a fighting force and as a serious party. Uh, they're not at the moment. But a combination of a brown prime ministership with, as I say, that clarity and severity of purpose and uh, a Lib Dem party under a new, younger, more dynamic leader, and particularly one who seems to have a lot in common with Conservative voters, is going to be a really serious problem for the Conservative Party. Finally, there's the question of policies. I have uh, been routinely criticising Cameron on policy ever since before he became... Prime Minister, uh, before he became leader of the opposition, a Freudian slip there, he doesn't seem, as far as I can see, to have any fixed principles. And we're consistently told, well, look, Mrs. Thatcher didn't come up with her policies this far in advance of the 79 election, so why should Dave? Well, yes, that's true up to a point. In 1976, the Conservative Party published a document called The Way Forward, which was all about the general principles on which they would seek to govern. And it was made quite clear from 1976 that this included a reduction in the size of the state and a restoration of power to individuals and certainly also a neutering of the trade unions. Now, I've seen no such clear statement of principles from Mr Cameron. I know he made the speech in Tooting on Monday, which was advertised by his spin doctors as a work of philosophy. It wasn't a work of philosophy. It was a wish list. Um, it had very little philosophical content at all. There was one random soundbite in it where he said he wanted to feed social responsibility uh, and put that in opposition to the, what he thought was the Brown Doctrine of State Control. The trouble is, if you are committed, as they, the Conservative Party still says it is, to a public spend of getting off £600 billion a year, you're not leaving very much scope for social responsibility you are clearly continuing to run uh, a country that is built on state control. If it weren't, you wouldn't need £600 billion a year. The Conservatives say, well, hang on, if we start talking about spending cuts and tax cuts, the Labour Party will say to us, well, what are you going to cut? Which hospitals are you going to close? Which schools are you going to close? That is an unnecessary trap uh, in which they do not have to fall. The Conservative Party needs to find a rhetoric where it talks about safeguarding um, frontline public services and people in frontline public service jobs 
but it also needs to talk about having an audit of, of a massive public sector. It defies belief that when you are spending £600 billion a year, you can't find the money to undertake uh, either tax cuts or certain important policy changes, such as restoring the, uh, uh, the, the, the brown tax rate on pension funds, which would be enormously populist. It remains Cameron's instinctive desire to spit in the face of his own hardcore voters. He thinks that if he upsets them, he will attract other people in. I'm afraid it isn't true. If he upsets them, they won't vote for him. More to the point, they won't go out and canvass for his candidates and put things through letterboxes and arrange meetings, which is absolutely crucial. And you see that in the implosion of some of the Tory grassroots at the moment, um, away from the, from the home counties. Uh, but also people who are given a choice between an imitation Labour Party to fight, uh, to, to vote for, and a real Labour Party to vote for, will tend to vote for the real one. Um, I know this won't make very nice listening to um, uh, any Conservative supporters here, but I feel at the moment he simply hasn't grasped what it takes to get this country behind him. But of course, he doesn't need to get the country behind him. Mrs Thatcher, whose uh, example he likes to quote when it suits him, won three elections by getting between 42 and 44% of the people on her side. Cameron doesn't need to be all things to all men. He just needs to get a big constituency like that behind him, and frankly, everyone else can go to hell. He needs to be ruthless about that. He doesn't want to be ruthless. He wants to be all things to all men, and that's why he went crack it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Simon. Plenty of food for thought there. Um, let me introduce my uh, next speaker, who is Peter Kellner, um, has been president of YouGov since April 2007, having served um, as chairman um, since 2001. During the past 37 years, he's written for a variety of newspapers, including The Times, The Sunday Times, The Independent, The Observer, The Evening Standard, New Statesman, also been a regular uh, contributor to programs like uh, Newsnight, Week in Politics on Channel 4, Analysis on Radio 4, and of course, uh, we've all seen him on election night results programs. Um, uh, before joining YouGov, Peter acted as a consultant on public opinion research to a number of organisations, including the Bank of England, Corporation of London, the Foreign Office, NatWest Bank and the TUC. Peter. Kirsty, thank you very much indeed. I, I regard myself on these occasions as a recovering journalist. Um, what I want to do in just a few minutes is, is set some of the sort of numerical context. I'm actually not going to talk... Um, particularly about recent YouGov findings. I've got them with me, and I'm more than happy to chew over them, the polls we did in the last few days for the Sunday Times and Channel 4 News. But I feel, in fact, building on what Simon said, you, what, what is the size of the mountain the Conservatives have to climb? This works. Yes, now that's what we all remember from the last election. Uh, this, is, this is what happened. However, there have been boundary changes since then. So if we look at what the real baseline is, that is, what would have happened had everybody cast their votes as they did two years ago, but on the new boundaries rather than the old boundaries, and you see the Conservative uh, baseline goes up from 198 seats to 210. It's still a long way from the 325, 326 they need for victory. The Labour, the Labour majority is still 48 on the new boundaries. So that's the, that's the real um, baseline. Now, what does this mean in terms of um, climbing that mountain? Well, last time, the Labour leading the popular vote was three percentage points. Now, if you assume 
a uniform swing, and you can assume whatever you like, but, but normally uniform swing gives the best broad brush indicator of what's going to happen. It might be slightly better or slightly worse for any particular party on the day. Um, and, and indeed, before the last general election two years ago, there was a lot of discussion about whether the Conservatives would do massively better in their marginal target seats in the rest of the country. And broadly, they didn't. Um, and that's a uniform swing um, prediction of what was not far out. So, um, so I, I'm, I'm, for the purposes of this illustration, I'm assuming uniform swing. Now, for Labour to lose its overall majority, the two parties have got to be about even in the popular vote. For the Conservatives to become the largest party, they need a lead in the popular vote of around six percentage points. That's getting on for a lead of two million votes um, for the Tories just to catch up Labour. So they both have around 270, 275 um, seats. I think this is quite important because it follows, therefore, that if, let's say, the Conservatives have a lead in the popular vote over Labour of around three points or about a million votes, Labour would almost certainly still, by a significant margin, be the larger party. They wouldn't have an overall majority, but you would have 20 or 30 more Labour MPs than Conservative MPs and obviously the politics of that, as well as the sophology, become quite, quite interesting. But in terms of the Conservatives achieving even first base, which is to become the largest party, they need a significant lead in the popular vote. And for the Conservatives to have an overall majority, they need a lead of around 11% in the popular vote, a 3.5 million votes more than Labour. Um, now, I won't here go over the reasons why there is this huge tilt in the system in the relationship between votes and seats. I, I, I can bore for Britain on this, I promise you, and if anybody wishes to sort of raise this a bit later on, I'd be happy to discuss it. But the fact of the matter is that you know, a 3% Labour lead gives Labour a comfortable overall majority. A 3% Conservative lead has the Conservatives still miles away from being the largest party, let alone having a majority of one, let alone having a majority of 48, which is where Labour starts from. Um, so the tilt in Britain's political geography for a variety of, of reinforcing reasons is quite stark. And finally, yep, um, you know, I've looked back over the last 50 years, there have been five times in the last 50 years where oppositions... Have, come, have, have, have successfully fought a general election, have come from opposition to um, power. And what the column-headed midterm support shows, that shows the highest vote share that the opposition achieved during those parliaments, and the final column shows the support they actually got in the subsequent general election when they came to power. And two things stand out. First is that every successful opposition has at some point during that um, four or five years been on 50% or more. And the second thing is that the vote they get on the day is always significantly lower than that peak support. The two times, as you can see, where it's the Conservatives have come to power, the difference has been 10 points between their peak mid-term support and what they got in the general election. So if history is any guide, and I accept that's a big if, and it's perfectly possible that you know, something will change, it'll be different this time, but if I were a conservative strategist, I would not rely on historical 
um, parallels being um, irrelevant. If history is any guide, then the problem is this, that the Conservatives, to get an overall majority, and I assume that it remains their objective, they need 40 to 42% of the vote, depending on the support for the Liberal Democrats and, and, and the smaller parties, something like that. And if history is repeated, it means that they need at some point to be 50 to 52% or more um, during this Parliament to have that cushion um, to allow them to slip back from their peak support to a level where they can still win. Well, in all the polls that we've done, other people have done, um, the Conservatives have, I think in only one poll, got above 40%. I think there was one ICM poll where they reached 41 from memory. We at YouGov have, have never had them above 40 since the last election. We have them currently on 37%. Um, and the Conservative performance in, in local elections has been pretty consistent with these poll findings. The Conservatives somewhere in the high 30s, maybe if you're, they're lucky, just touching 40%. But they're still a mile off where they really need to be in mid-term, in my view, to be favourites to win the next general election. Now, I've used my five minutes, and I'm more than happy to discuss other recent YouGov poll findings, but it does seem to me that the um, size of the mountain the Conservatives have to climb is extremely steep and remains extremely steep. Thank you very much. Well, let me now introduce our third speaker, uh, Nick Clegg, uh, Clegg, MP. He is MP for Sheffield Hallam and the Lib Dem Shadow Home Secretary. Um, Nick began his career as a journalist. Um, he worked on the FT. He uh, then went to work for the European Commission as a development aide and trade expert before being elected um, as a MEP to the European Parliament in 1999. He stood down uh, in 2004 and was elected as F MP for Sheffield Hallam in 2005 with a majority of over 8,000. Nick has spearheaded the Lib Dems' defence of civil liberties, campaigning against ID cards and the retention of um, innocent people's DNA. He's also argued against excessive counter-terrorism legislation and defended the Human Rights Act. Um, for those of you who've seen the front page of The Guardian today, uh, <laughs> he is also soon to become a member of a brown cabinet, a story he denies. Um, a sort of Bernard Kushner of Britain, I should say. Nick. <laughs> yes, except I should think Bernard Kushner was consulted before these things appeared in the newspaper. Um, it was utterly news to me. Um, Kirsty, thanks very much. Uh, if I was a, um, a public, if I was working in public relations in PR, I think I would be pretty impressed by some of what uh, Cameron has done. I mean, the, the, the attempt to rebrand himself and the party, uh, I think, has been bold. It's been consistent, and in some places, it's been uh, imaginative as a rebranding exercise. If if, however, you're interested in gaining insights into what the future of British politics holds or what the Conservative Party as a party is about, um, I'm probably more confused now than I was prior to David Cameron appearing on the scene. And that seems to me to be a rather important, and from David Cameron's point of view, um, dangerous distinction, which is that what is admirable about what he's done is almost entirely about presentation and branding and what is ill-defined about what he's done is about content, ideology, and, and political direction. Now, uh, some of the present dangers for Cameron, I think, are barely worth dwelling on in such a, um, 
uh, sort of audience of political sophisticates because they, they're, they're, I think they've become very obvious. I mean, the first major danger for him seems to be this perception that he doesn't possess authenticity. I think that is uh, extraordinarily dangerous at a time when uh, it, there is plenty of anecdotal and other evidence to suggest that after 10 years of heavy spin presentational politics, there is an appetite for authenticity. Uh, the image that we're told, I read somewhere in the newspaper yesterday, keeps being repeated in focus groups when people asked about David Cameron, of him bicycling to work but his uh, uh, shoes being ferried behind him uh, in, a, in a car. Um, notwithstanding the fact that it might be faintly comic, is, is, I think exemplifies the real, real problem about a perception that, it, that the, that the um, rebranding exercise is skin deep and isn't followed through with, with sincerity and authenticity. So that is, I think, challenge number one for him. How does he shed that image? If he doesn't shed the reputation for a lack of authenticity, I think he's in very serious trouble indeed. It's not, it just doesn't go with the with the flow, I think, of, of public sentiment, what they're looking for. Secondly, and obviously, um, so many other, other commentariat, as they're clearly called here, have, have uh, commented on this, which is the uh, perception that David Cameron and his party are two separate things, that, that they live in sort of parallel universes. This obviously uh, became uh, part of some sort of mainstream political debate around the Ferrari on, um, on grammar schools, where he... Uh, and, and uh, his spokespeople seem to be speaking at variance with uh, sentiment in his own uh, party. It's been borne out by some polling, which I saw a few days ago, about the uh, attitudes of, of Conservative Party members and MPs to sort of core lifestyle, uh, sexuality and diversity issues with which he's become closely associated, but they do not yet appear to share. Anecdotally, I must say, it's borne out by some experiences I've had in Sheffield. I I, representing a constituency that was a safe, true blue seat until uh, 1997, the only Conservative seat in South Yorkshire, I make it my business to um, uh, meet, greet, and get on well with the formidable um, battalion of ladies who run the Conservative um, Association. And uh, I, I, when I meet them, I often say to them, I say, look, you must be in despair. I mean, what's happened to the Conservative Party? Who is this namby-pamby chap? He's not talking about for- kicking foreigners out and slashing taxes and... Why isn't he ranting about immigration? This is awful. That's what you're about. And they look at me with a sort of mixture of pity. And they say, oh, nice young man. And then, and then they say, no, 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 that's what we need to win. But they, have absolutely, they haven't internalised it at all. They don't feel it. There's no, I, mean, I, can, you, you, I can sense it instantly. They don't, they don't quite understand what he's about. But they've been persuaded that that is necessary in order to win votes. Well, you can't survive, it seems to me, under the glare of the very intense scrutiny we have in contemporary politics by, if you like, saying one thing for, for an outward-facing sort of message, but actually internally not have that message really shared by the troops who've got to deliver it for you on your behalf in, in, in uh, seat uh, after seat up and down the country. Third obvious point are the regional limitations to his appeal. Uh, Simon has made the point already. I think the local election results, uh, notwithstanding all the um, apparent triumphalism of uh, the Conservative Party reaction, was very, very worrying indeed. They made no progress in Manchester or Newcastle. Merseyside, which used to be a sort of Parts of it were sort of conservative monopoly in the 1970s. It's now completely dominated by two-party politics. In, in my city, in Sheffield, there were two conservative councillors. You would have thought, with the Cameron bounce, they could at least hold on to those two. They lost one. There's only one conservative councillor now left uh, in Sheffield. So in, in important respects, they've gone backwards in the north, in those metropolitan heartlands, where, as to be fair to Cameron, he's, he's openly acknowledged he needs to make 
um, uh, progress. For two slightly more, I hope, subtle um, um, uh, points. I hear guffawing from uh, Ed uh, uh, inevitably on the end. You, you'll have your moment in the sun in a minute, Ed. Um, is, is this, two things. I wonder whether Cameron's fascination with Blair um, is smart politics. And I say this because it seems to me that Ed and all the Cameroons have, have become absolutely bewitched by Blair. They hold up Blair as the paragon of political success. And you can see why he's won so many elections and so on. But it seems to me there are two problems with it. Firstly, if you, if you become so closely associated, and in some, some respects almost conflated with Blair, you associate yourself very deliberately with the past, with something that's going out. And I wonder whether that is the right uh, stance, if you like, at a time when you're trying to catch a wind of change. And secondly, much more importantly, Blair and Cameron seem to me to have one fundamental thing in common, which is that they are both defined or rather they both define themselves, certainly in the early stage of their political career, in terms of what they're against in their own party. Uh, if you ask me still now to define what Blairism is about, I will really, really, really struggle. I can tell you exactly what he's against, and I can tell you exactly how he defined himself against his own party in, in, in the reinvention of Labour to, to new Labour. And I just think that therein lies a great danger, that... I think Cameron has satisfactorily answered what he's against, has satisfactorily answered how he wants to rebrand the Conservative Party, but he hasn't yet even started to demonstrate what he's for. I hear the refrain about we want less state and more society. I agree with something like that. I find it a, an easy platitude to endorse. I think, there is, I think he's asking roughly the right questions in terms of what do we do after 10 years of, of very big government. Um, we are clearly moving into a phase of British politics where we have to do more with less, less money, where there is an appetite for people and communities to be empowered, less direction from the top, less target setting, less directives from the, from the centre. But I don't quite know still what Cameron means by society. If you're going to roll back the state, what replaces it? Is it voluntary organisations? Is it some sort of nebulous, I don't know, sort of noblesse oblige from the centre, which is sort of central paternalism but with a lighter touch. I don't know. I haven't yet heard him speak about how you really reinvigorate local democracy, how you really reinstill local autonomy, perhaps through uh, um, uh, money-raising powers at local level. He hasn't even touched that um, issue. He, he criticises tax credits, sure start for being too interventionist, and then defends the NHS status quo as if it's utterly perfect. He talks about using the clunking fist of tax incentives from the centre to promote marriage of all things, as if people marry because of some tax wheeze dangled from the centre. These are very conflicting messages. They're on the one hand rather centralising, rather paternalist in some respects, or just vacuous, to put it bluntly. So, uh, I don't, I, I'm, of course it is my role here to be critical, but I'm also trying to be objective. I think... I think uh, uh, there is a major intellectual task at hand for Cameron to, to, to have built upon how he has defined what he's against in, the, uh, in his own party about uh, to, to now go on and define what he's for, for Britain as a whole. Thank you very much. Well, our next guest is Shami Chakrabarti, CBE, I should say. Congratulations. Uh, Shami has been a director of uh, Liberty, formerly the National Council for Civil Liberties, since September 2003. 
She first joined Liberty as an in-house counsel uh, on the 10th of September 2001 and became heavily involved in its engagement with the war on terror and with the defence and promotion of human rights values in, in Parliament, the courts and wider society. A barrister by background, she was called to the bar in 94 and worked as a lawyer in the Home Office from 96 until 2001 for governments of uh, both persuasions. Shami. Thanks very much. I have to tell you, it was quite an extraordinary experience sitting in between these two gentlemen for the last (laughs) five minutes. I'm hugely relieved not to be a politician, I have to say, having listened to that. And I feel feel a little sorry even for David Cameron, but not too sorry because we're all here talking about him and and, and, um, so so he can't be doing that badly. Let me start with with the good news as far as I'm concerned. and I can afford to be more generous than Nick because I'm not a, a member of a rival political party or, or, or any political party. Um, David Cameron's unequivocal opposition to identity cards, um, to me, is not just PR. And I, I do believe it. I, 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 it has been unequivocal. I, I really think that he has that instinct. Um, and he, I think that's one of, the, one of the few very clear policy commitments that he has issued, and it's very good news uh, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not going to be churlish about it. Very, gra- very grateful for that. Also very grateful for um, his so far maintained opposition to l- ludicrous counterproductive anti-terror policies like detaining people for 90 days without charge which in my view and the, uh, and, and the view of my organisation would, would, um, would create far more terrorists than it would, it would ever prevent. Um, and um, I also think that um, some, of his, some of his remarks about criminality, uh, particularly criminality amongst younger people, um, have been brave um, I, don't, I don't know, you know what the philosophical underpinning for them is, but I think they, they, they have been brave, and, and, and clearly they've been brave because they've upset you know, um, many people. Um, um, and, and so I would applaud all of that as being something that is constructive and is about positive debate um, in, in, in the area of home affairs, which has become so politicised in recent years, and I applaud all of that. Um, more broadly, in terms of what he's trying to do within his party, I have to applaud his attempts um, at encouraging more women to, um, to um, be parliamentary candidates and, and, and greater diversity. Those, in my view, are progressive, constructive steps that a sensible leader of a, a political party should be taking. Um, now, I hate to resonate with things that have already been said, but there are other things that cause me graver concern. Because whilst I've catalogued these, these policy benchmarks, which are very welcome to someone like me, I contrast them with his very populist trashing of the Human Rights Act, which is frankly incoherent. It's legally, intellectually incoherent this homegrown Bill of Rights with common sense, which means you can be against identity cards and in, against internment, but, but have, I don't know, rights for free-born Englishmen and nothing for dirty foreigners. That, to me, is incoherent, um, because he also maintains that he wants to keep Britain within the European Convention on Human Rights. And I think um, that I must agree with Simon Heffer that there comes a point... When um, sorry, Simon won't won't be happy with that, perhaps. But um, ruined his day, Shami. Um, I'm sorry about that. I must not agree with Simon Heffer, um, but I'm 
I, I'm sympathetic with the view that there comes a point when, if you're trying to elicit the trust um, from voters, they have to know a little bit about your philosophical underpinning. Now, I know that David Cameron has said he's not an ideological person, and I, you know, grew up in the 80s where people said, uh, where my parents said, for goodness sake, you know, why is the Labour Party so bloody ideological? Um, and, and frankly, now in the, you know, in 2007, I kind of wish the politics were a little bit more ideological. And I know that Peter Hitchens probably agrees with me. I just caught caught his. I find it easier to have sensible political debate with people who believe something. And I actually think that when I, when I, as a you know a cross-party, non-party, what was it, member of the commentariat, attempt to engage with people in politics, I do find that if you believe something and you're a Democrat, there is actually quite a not quite a lot to build consensus around. I find it harder to neg- negotiate or to debate when I don't really know what your what your philosophical underpinning is. Now that doesn't mean that David Cameron doesn't have principles. I just don't really know what those underlying principles are yet. How he squares this circle you know, with, with with these progressive policies as I see them on things like ID cards and 90 days and this nonsense um, about homegrown bills of rights with common sense and, and, and all of that. But but I'm you know but I'm trying to I'm being trying to be critical but but but, but constructive at, at, at the same time. Does this represent ambivalence or just someone who hasn't yet emerged in all his glory and actually told us what, he, what his values are and what he really believes? I don't know the answer. But a test may come, and it may come soon, because if Mr Brown um, hears the siren calls to play to the right on security, and we know that there are voices in Mr Brown's ear, from Lord, we know that Lord Gould and others will be saying the way to beat Cameron is to go hard to the right on security... If that happens, what is David Cameron going to do? And that's a question that I, that's a question I have in my mind. This is on the record. That is going to be a test, and that test may come very soon. Are these, are these lines that have been you know, on ID cards, on 90 days, are they going to hold solid? And it would seem to me that they only can if he can, if he can set out his philosophical store and explain the underlying thinking, the reason why identity cards don't work, the reason why internment make th- makes things worse rather than better, and why in Britain we should be against them. So I think that's going to be a test. Uh, I think he's got a, a tough job, you know, as leaders of these relatively broad church political parties in this country do. They have, they have historical tensions and different um, traditions within their parties to, 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 to manage. My own private view is the reason for this ambivalence about the Human Rights Act and that, and that incoherent mess that was criticised by his own tutor, Vernon Bogdaner. The reason for that is that he does have these rival traditions in his party, the authoritarian and libertarian instincts within his party, the europhobe, europhile um, traditions within that party. These are, these are difficult circles to square, but in my view, not impossible. Now, I, of course, am not an elected politician. I'm not a member of the Conservative Party, Um, But like others here, I have in recent years been up and down the country and spoken to many conservative audiences. And you might well be surprised at how warm the reception sometimes has been. Now, this is partly because conservatives are generally polite, as as you know. And I have to say that you do get... Except Fred. Perhaps. perhaps, (laughs) Except Fred, yeah. (laughs) 
Gentlemen, please. Um, if that, that may be that people are just being nice and polite, and, and there's no doubt about that. But I do think that this idea of rights, freedoms, and the rule of law is something that can unite people in this country, let alone conservatives, after 10 years of the most authoritarian government in living memory. It is what unites me and Peter Hitchens. I've embarrassed Simon Heffer, so I thought I'd turn my... We, this loathing of identity cards and of taking, the innocent, uh, taking innocent people's DNA for no obvious reason. Um, the, you know, the, the, we're not going to... Uh, Ed, Ed gets very upset at this suggestion, but it, it's, not about agreeing, it's not about agreeing with people on every issue. It's about whether you can have values in common and whether you can build a broad church consensus around certain values. Now, maybe this is impossible, and maybe um, Peter won't thank me for what I've said, but I think ultimately, if you are trying to, to rebuild trust with an electorate as a politician of whatever colour, let alone trying to build a future for a political party whose fortunes have been flagging, it isn't a bad idea to start out setting out that store. Because as someone uh, like Mr Cameron will know, having worked for governments, a lot of what happens in government is not going to be things that you planned in your manifesto. Things are going to happen in terms of foreign policy, home affairs policy. God forbid bombs go off. God forbid there are terrible international tensions. And at those moments, people have to trust you to be the person who makes those difficult life and death decisions on behalf of the country. And they're only going to trust you if they think they've just got some measure of what you're about as a person and, and, and what your underlying values are. Jamie, thank you very much. very interesting to have on the record that Shami uh, agrees with both Peter Hitchings and Simon Heffer. Um, well, last but not least, Ed Vasey, whose uh, job it will be now to defend his leader against all these attacks that we've been hearing. <laughs> well, they say that's true. So you, were, you, were, you missed Simon, I think. <laughs> Probably fortunately. <laughs> for you. Um, uh, Ed is the MP uh, for Wantage in Oxfordshire, and he's also the opposition's shadow arts minister, uh, formerly a practising barrister. Ed has worked for uh, Kenneth Clark and Michael Howard, um, and obviously got uh, uh, bitten by the political rather than the legal bug uh, very soon. After a stint um, in PR, um, he returned to politics full-time and was elected um, in 2005. In addition to his arts portfolio, Ed is the deputy chairman of uh, the Conservatives' Globalisation and Global Poverty Policy Group. Ed. Uh, well, I'll start with a humble and grovelling apology. Uh, this was not an event I wanted to be late for, and I won't go into the details. It was one of those mornings combination of childcare and expired Oyster card and district line, the bane of my life. I humbly uh, apologise. Uh, it's been very interesting listening to, I have heard all, all the speakers, I managed to get here on time, uh, hearing their critique, I think, of uh, how David Cameron is doing. What I would say is that David Cameron set out his stall very, very clearly uh, when he ran for the leadership of the Conservative Party. He said he was going to uh, move the Conservative Party back to the centre ground and he highlighted uh, the issues he wanted to concentrate on. And since then, I think he's done a pretty impressive job. Uh, he has moved the Conservative more to the centre ground. I think he's attracted support from a far wider range of people than had hitherto been the case. I hear what Peter Kellner says, but it's still pretty uncharted territory for the Conservatives to be uh, around the 40% mark uh, when you consider our record over the last 
15 years, and it's pretty uncharted territory uh, to have gained 900 to 1,000 council seats at the last uh, local elections. I read Simon's interesting piece on the BBC uh, this morning, and we've had uh, discussions with the BBC about the fact that they set us a target of 600, which would be excellent, uh, and then concluded once we'd won 1,000 that we had uh, cause to be happiest out of all the three main parties. Well, Labour went into reverse, and the Lib Dems have now become a small northern regional party as their councillors have been decimated uh, in the south of England. So in terms of practical politics, I think David Cameron has done a very good job. In terms of policies, which is the traditional attack on David Cameron, I think people uh, seem to completely skate over some of the tough policy decisions or interesting policy decisions David Cameron has taken. If you take, for example, the issue of tuition fees, uh, which I think the Conservative Party got itself into quite a confused position before the 2005 election, because you would expect the Conservative Party to support the principle of tuition fees, and you would also expect... Uh, in the 21st century globalised age, uh, that if our universities are going to compete uh, with American universities and indeed Indian and China, Chinese universities, uh, that tuition fees is the way forward. Uh, we, we, to put it frankly, I think ducked that issue in the run-up to the 2005 election, and David Cameron did not duck that issue uh, when he was elected party leader and made it clear uh, that tuition fees will remain uh, under the next Conservative government. I think if you look at some of the other decisions, uh, the decision to put economic stability in front of tax cuts is a tough battle, perhaps, within the Conservative Party, but it is an extremely sensible position to take uh, if you want uh, to show the British people uh, that you're going to be a competent, sensible government uh, to put economic stability first and not to promise tax cuts uh, that you don't know how to fund simply to get a headline. Uh, But there are other interesting and radical ideas. Uh, Nick was talking about uh, localism and accountability. Well, David Cameron has put forward proposals for elected police commissioners, uh, people elected to make uh, local police forces more accountable and more in touch with the needs uh, of local people. And he's also said some tough things about how the police are run and drawn flack from uh, the ranks of the police themselves. The environment is another obvious issue where David Cameron uh, has made the running put it at the centre of the political stage. Some people still think talking about the environment is a gimmick, but you only have to look at what is happening now in America, where it is absolutely uh, centre stage and now uh, very much part of their political agenda. And again, putting forward some tough proposals for consultation uh, about uh, taxing air flights. They're not popular. They're not going to win easy votes, but they are part of the argument, and they call the bluff if one is serious about climate change. And, of course, the issue of ID cards, where I feel passionately uh, opposed to ID cards, always have been opposed to ID cards. So I think all those factors show that David Cameron is prepared to take uh, tough decisions about policy. Uh, and you know, this idea that it's all kind of spin and nonsense is just absolute uh, rubbish. So I think that's the point I really want to get across. But there is also this point about... David spitting in the eye of the hardcore Tory voter. I've always wondered, what is a hardcore Tory voter? Why am I not a hardcore Tory voter? I've voted Tory all my life. I was an out Tory at university. Not an easy thing to be. Uh, I regard myself as a hardcore Tory voter, and I haven't been spat in the face by David Cameron. 
But what I think David Cameron is doing is reaching out to the disillusioned Tory voter, uh, the voter who came up to me and is always stuck in my mind, a retired bank manager at my selection meeting uh, in 2002, at my selection meeting before open primaries, therefore a member of my association, uh, 65-plus, uh, I'm glad you've been selected. I may vote Conservative at the next election. This was a man who'd voted for Blair in 1997 and 2001. And there is a, this myth that there is a kind of hard core of Tory voters sitting at home waiting uh, for a truly right-wing Conservative government to come and lead them to the promised land. Actually, there's a hard core of Tory voters who, have, who switched their votes to Labour in 1997. Quite a few came back in 2005. But those are the people who uh, we uh, need to attract back. So I hear what Nick Clegg says. I'm, it's the first time I've heard a Liberal Democrat describe himself as confused, but I totally understand why he is. I think it's completely unfair to say that we're bewitched by Blair when this is uh, a party that uh, was desperate to go into coalition with Blair in 1997, and we now know uh, they're going into coalition with Brown even before the next election is called. So I think uh, if you're going to talk about uh, parties being bewitched by Blairism, and Gordon Brown does regard himself as the heir to Blair, I think you should be looking at the Liberal Democrats, not at the Conservative Party. Thank you. Ed Vesey, thank you. Now, we've got about uh, 15, 20 minutes for questions. Um, Try and keep them uh, brief. My name's George Pitcher. I'm from St. Bride's. Um, I'd like to take it out of the uh, profound area of policy and um, sophology into an area I'm more familiar with, which is PR, which has been mentioned by that Mr. Kellner. I mean public relations, uh, not proportional representation. Um, and ask really whether the, 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 the difference that seems to be emerging between the Brown camp and the Cameron camp is Cameron seems to be playing, playing the 1997 game, the old Tony Blair game and so on. And he's appointed, um, Andy Coulson's a friend of mine, so I, mean, I don't want to be rude or anything, but he's appointed a sort of celebrity PR man, you know, a name, so one from uh, tabloid newspapers again. And I'm wondering whether the age of the celebrity PR man post-Campbell is over. And allied to that, what I'm interested in, really, is uh, the communications process, whether it's a broader issue than that and whether actually we're emerging from some sort of spin culture. You know, Gordon Brown has appointed, and I really don't want to sound as supercilious as I'm going to sound, but I can't remember the name of the career civil servant that he's appointed to be his head of communications. And that's in a way, sort of the point, isn't it? Is it somebody Allen? Something like that. And I don't mean to be disrespectful to him, but actually, I mean, there, there's the point, in a way, that, that one's moving away, or he appears to be moving away from that kind of uh, spin culture, which, of course, of itself could be an act of spin. You know, um, there will be no more spin. That should play well in the newspapers, you know. And, and whoever said Gordon Brown is... The trouble with Gordon Brown is that he's all substance and no style, was clearly serving the purposes of image and therefore spin. But uh, w- what I'm wondering <laughs> is how are, those, how are those two cultures squaring up, in your view, and is the age of the celebrity spin doctor over, and does it matter? First of all, I think you know, Andy Coulson edited a national newspaper and a, and a very successful 
national newspaper. And I think it's this kind of bizarre uh, political world we live in that you wouldn't appoint someone to liaise with the media who had, you know, it's wrong to appoint someone to liaise with the media who's got significant media experience, that somehow that is the wrong thing to do in politics. The idea that Gordon Brown isn't looking for someone uh, with that kind of background and experience I think is a myth. I think he probably is, and I'm not sure uh, that the particular person he's got his eye on has said yes or not. Uh, And also the idea that his career civil servant isn't capable of um, knocking a few heads together in the media just because he's a career civil servant I think is also ludicrous. But I think what you then have to do is, first of all, you have to acknowledge, I think, the idea that Brown is immune to spin is completely and utterly absurd. I mean, you know, he was... He's been photographed in various social situations, uh, which didn't happen by accident. Uh, And secondly, I think you've got to contrast... You've got to put aside whoever's appointed to do that particular job and look at what the Conservatives are proposing in terms of what Kenneth Clark has come up with in terms of the Democracy Task Force, in terms of uh, making Parliament a much more powerful and significant body again and reducing the powers uh, and numbers, indeed, of special advisers. Uh, so, you know, you may not agree whether or not Andy Coulson is the right appointment, but you've got to understand, if we go into government, where he would fit uh, within a much uh, stronger civil service and parliamentary machine. I'm just going to uh, ask Simon to answer this, having called David Cameron a spin spiv at one point in one of your columns. Yes, um, I mean, I don't know Mr Coulson. I'm sure he's a lovely man, but he did leave his last employers under something of a cloud. Um, as having uh, had a criminal enterprise going on at the News of the World that he allegedly wasn't aware of. And um, there's going to be an industrial tribunal fairly soon, I believe, um, where the full extent of his knowledge or lack of it, of of that particular process, will will come out, and we better wait for that. I've always thought that Cameron's approach to politics is entirely stunt-led. And, of course, I think it was Nick Clegg who said that uh, he's rebranded the party, and he he certainly has, and uh, it's an act of rebranding that has revolted, what I'm afraid I will persist, whatever Red Razor says, in calling the core vote of the Tory party. Um, These are people who are now writing to the Daily Telegraph, not just to me, but to our letters page all the time, saying that they're going to vote for UKIP or not vote at all next time. So, um, uh, yes, maybe it is a myth that there's a core vote because it's it's all deserted. Um, Andy Colson, uh, as well as being a tabloid editor, was, uh, I believe, a very gifted showbiz correspondent. And um, I'm not sure how that uh, qualifies him to represent the political purposes of a great political party to the wider world, but we will, we will wait and see. Um, if you are uh, taking the view that the conduct of politics today is about the engagement in stunts, then clearly he's a man who's well qualified to, to shepherd that uh, particular process. I don't at the moment see, I, of course, uh, I'm willing to be proved wrong, um, that he's actually going to uh, engage in not just deep um, uh, philosophical thought on behalf of David Cameron when communicating to the media, uh, but also that he'll actually have a clue what's going on. Uh, question from the gentleman in the white shirt, just here in the front. My name's Neil Stewart, and I want to say a word in favour of whether or not David Cameron can crack it. Um, my background is that I was the political secretary to Neil Kinnock in 1992. I think the figures are quite interesting. Cameron has a huge hill to climb, but what is it that he has to crack? The first thing is, how do you form a government in Britain? Well, obviously, you can get an absolute majority of 324, but that's not actually how you form a government. What you have to do is get your Queen's speech through. And if there are 62 Liberals and some SNP who decide to sit on their hands, uh, David Cameron only has to get up to about 250 and he might be able to get his Queen's speech through. In other words, what he has to crack is the Liberals. 
He's either got to crack the Liberal vote, and I think both Gordon Brown and him are trying to crack the Liberal vote, and they're trying to crack the Liberal Party in case it's a hung parliament. Labour only has to lose, I think, a swing of about 15 to 2% to run the risk of losing the red boxes, especially if Peter's right that on most of the main permutations, the Conservatives could be ahead in the popular vote. So I think it's much more open. I was the guy in 1992 that John Cole phoned me at 6 o'clock and said, on the BBC exit polls, which were predicated on a 73, 74 turnout, we had probably won. When we got to 10 o'clock, the turnout was 78. I'd like to hear Peter's view about that huge 18% that is out there, not just Ed's possible returning Conservatives, but that huge chunk who haven't voted, and what happens to people's spreadsheets if they do start to vote, and what do we know about it? And finally, the commentators in London have to look outside London at what's happening and what the Liberal Party are up to in Scotland, in Wales, and in local government. At the moment, quite rightly, I think, the strategy seems to be get Labour out, break a few eggs, see if you can make a new omelette. But if you look at the local government chart, which has just been published by the Municipal Journal, it's overwhelmingly blue. So if you watch television at the weekends outside London, you're going to be watching stories over the coming year that are led by Conservatives. That was a position that Labour enjoyed before, and that's a turnout. So I think it's much more open. I think Gordon Brown's got a big, big task ahead. I think people like Charles Clark were right. Labour's flanks are weak. There are fault lines, uh, and I think it's game on. So I thought I should speak up for the Leader of the Opposition since that's my instinctive position. Well, I'm just going to get Nick Clegg and Peter Kellner to answer this question, then I'll take another one. Neil, to the, to the two things that sort of, uh, if you like, were addressed at the Liberal Democrats. Um, firstly, I couldn't agree with you more about the need uh, to sort of standing admonition, I suppose, that... Uh, uh, the, the kind of Westminster Village, the London-based commentariat needs to sort of look beyond London. Um, I've always been struck, as someone who commutes between Sheffield and London every week, how I inhabit two totally different political universes. And the one that is covered in the national press is all about the Conservative versus Labour. That narrative, if you like, has no resonance at all for my constituents and for the whole city of Sheffield, which is a vicious two-party battle between the Liberal Democrats and Labour. It's a, it's a different universe. The Conservatives are simply irrelevant to that, and yet the national uh, London-based media, of course, uh, provides a, an echo which, as I say, simply doesn't, uh, doesn't translate to certainly large parts of uh, metropolitan Britain north of Northampton, say. Um, secondly, on sort of the... the, the, you know, the, the, the task for both the, the larger parties is to crack... Uh, the Liberal Democrats. I'm no doubt that is probably uh, true. It's the only possible explanation, incidentally, that I can come up with for this absurd story in the front page of The Guardian today, because it, it's self-evident that does a huge amount of damage for the Liberal Democrats. Um, uh, uh, who stands to gain? Probably Gordon Brown. Who stands to lose? The, the Liberal Democrats. It's odd that it's also, incidentally, produced anonymously, um, which is a, a curious thing to have on the front page of a major newspaper. But setting that aside, I think that, look, of course the Liberal Democrats are under a squeeze at the moment. We have an abnormal constellation of, of events at the moment, which, ma which is making life for us at present difficult. I can't remember, though your 
political memory is longer than mine. I can't remember circumstances in which the two leaders of the main parties, the Conservative and Labour parties, can say so little and be subject to so little criticism for doing so. But, you know, Brown it remains sphinx-like and yet seems to have risen imperceptibly in the polls. Uh, Cameron, both of them understandably don't want to reveal too much of their policy hand. So you've got, you've got this really odd holding pattern in British politics at the moment where Cameron and Brown can afford this luxury, which I think is a temporary luxury, and certainly coming to an end for, for Cameron and will do so soon for, for Brown, to really strike poses to strike liberal poses without actually justifying them or um, uh, providing any substance to them. What we need to do as the third party, the liberal party, is to hold our nerve and when the contest of ideas and policies come through and there's a real test about who is liberal in the long run, as Shami uh, uh, indicated, for instance, on the security debate, that we are there, can hold our own um, and can test all the rhetoric that has been thrown at us uh, over these few weeks and months against what is actually delivered. And I, I, I fully anticipate that things will uh, certainly uh, benefit us in, in that contest in a way that, at the moment, is not very self-evident. Peter. I'd like to take uh, two points. One, I disagree with Neil, and the other, I, I agree uh, I disagree on, on the lessons of 92. The exit poll was wrong, and it was wrong throughout the day. I, I, was, I was involved in that exit poll. It was the first time the BBC had commissioned a nationwide general election exit poll, and the knowledge of the, of the natural rhythm of party vote during the day was not as understood then as it was now. So the combination of, uh, of not knowing what is now well known, which is that you get a lot of the commuter votes normally Tory voting in the evening, plus the fact the poll was wrong anyway, meant that John Cole had a bum steer, uh, and therefore you had a bum steer. Um, and the more, the, the more widely on turnout, I think the drop in turnouts over the last 15 years has had l- less of an effect in terms of party seats than some people think. The big drop in turnout was between 97 when it was 71%, I think, and, and 2001 when it was 59%. So it was a drop of 12 points. So we know that you know, the turnout in parts of Liverpool was terrible, and in you know, Winchester was very high and so on. But the drop in turnout was much the same in every type of seat. The turnout in, 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 in a city seat was always a lot lower than everywhere else. The turnout in, in suburban seats, especially ones where the Liberals are in contention, is always higher than the national average. So... It's not, you know, I, I don't think the drop in turnout made much of a difference, and therefore I don't think a recovery in turnout will necessarily make a difference. Now, in any one election, it might be different. It might be that, that, that there will you know, there'll, there'll come an election when people are so determined to get rid of Labour uh, that they will vote Conservative. This happened to some extent in 1970, when I think there was a turnout bias in favour of the Conservatives. I said more Labour people stayed at home than the Tories. But I wouldn't rely on that. Um, the the wider point at which I do agree is, yeah, what might happen if it's a hung parliament? Um, now, if I were a, a, a Tory strategist, and maybe this is what they're saying privately, but I wouldn't dream that they would um, say it publicly, is that Cameron's objective, real objective, must be to get into number 10 in some shape or form, possibly even as the leader of the second largest party in a hung parliament. Because if you do have, let us say... Uh, a one million vote leads in the popular vote for the Conservatives, but they have 20 fewer seats, Labour's 290, Tories 270, something like that, then um, the the ball is initially in Labour's court. 
that they don't have to go to the Queen, and Gordon Brown wouldn't have to go to the Queen and resign. But as you say, he does have to get a Queen's speech through. And if for whatever reason he feels he can't get a Queen's speech through, then the Queen will call on David Cameron. And I think as in March 1974, I think in those circumstances, Cameron would get a Queen's speech through easily because the circumstances which Labour would have, as it were, handed the baton back to the Queen to pass on to David Cameron. We want to where Labour, I suspect, would not vote against the Queen's speech because it would seem to be leaving Britain without a government. So if, if Cameron gets his Queen's speech, even with only 270 MPs, then he will clearly sprint to a second election six or nine months later, which I think he would win hands down. Um, so I agree with you that you know, we could enter a very, very murky period. Um, you know, the numbers I was putting forward um, were to try and you know, make clear that you know, on whatever scenario, it is much tougher for the Tories than for Labour. Labour wins an overall majority on around 35% of the vote. The Conservatives win an overall majority on around 40 to 42% of the vote. The system is tilted against them. But I agree uh, one could paint a scenario in which Cameron becomes Prime Minister with, um, uh, with fewer seats than Labour and is then set fair for six or seven years. Thank you. I've only got time for just one more question. It's got to be a fairly brief question and answer because we need to, to wrap up. The gentleman um, in the glasses there. I'm Sandy Walkington, um, EI consultant, but also Liberal Democrat candidate for St Albans. Just picking up on Neil's point about the Tory local government base, which has increased, admittedly, in their heartlands, I think a major problem will be the disjunct between Tories and local government and what Cameron is presenting nationally. We saw in the Tory Scottish parliamentary manifesto was rated as the least green, the worst of all the manifestos. If you look at all the Tory councils where they have control, they have the worst record in terms of environment, in terms of initiatives, in all of that green agenda. Our own experience locally is that they're pretty rubbish, actually. But I think a big problem for Mr Cameron will be that actually where you see Tories in power, their core values that Simon espouses shine out and don't change. And there's an increasing disjunct, and it goes back to that authenticity point that Nick made at the start. Actually, I'm just going to take a point from, from Peter Hitchens, because I, I didn't see you with your hand up, but Peter's just told me you had yours up. Would you, do you want to take a question Special as well? treatment. <laughs> no, I just didn't see that. Special for the commentary. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, I, I, by the way, I'm sure David Cameron will be really glad to know that he has the endorsement of an old Kinnikite, uh, the sure sign of political success. Uh, there is a mystery uh, in this morning's proceedings which seems to me to be unexplained. Listening to Mr. Kellner's excellent exposition of the electoral position, it seemed clear to me that my long-ago conclusion that the Conservative Party is a ghost brand, uh, a slowly dying thing which is still worth marketing, which will never again succeed, like uh, Woodbine cigarettes and the Daily Express, uh, is, uh, <laughs> is, is, is proven... And, and, and quite obvious to anyone who looks, and I think, I think Mr. Clegg's remarks about Sheffield and the different world outside Westminster, where people don't actually acknowledge the existence of the Conservative Party, is, is, uh, is, is, is largely true. It's, it's dead. It's finished. It's merely a matter of how long it takes for its remaining members to be collected by the Grim Reaper. Why is it, in that case, that so much of the supposedly feral commentariat acts and writes and talks as if the Conservative Party is a serious political force in Britain today. 
I've got, literally got about a minute for, uh, for that to be answered. Um, Simon? I'm not sure he was including me in that, actually. <laughs> no, thank you. So I think I'll, I'll, I'll let someone else answer that question. Who would, anyone would like to answer that, Ed, very briefly, last word? Uh, well, I'm you? delighted to have the endorsement of Noel Kinnikite and sad not to have it from an old Marxist. But, uh, you know, I do think that, um, you know, the fact is the Conservatives are taking... The Conservatives are... Exactly, you, you move around. Uh, you're a great man of principle, Peter. But, um, uh, the, you know, the Conservatives are in power in local councils and making a real difference. I mean, Sandy, you know, talk about lies, damn lies and statistics. I mean, uh, Conservatives are powering ahead in terms of uh, local government and in what they're doing, both in keeping council tax low, uh, but also in issues like the environment. So you can see them on the ground. Uh, You know, the great idea that that, uh, David Cameron is espousing is a Conservative idea, which is about social responsibility, giving power back to the people, local accountability, and that's the road we're going down. And it's interesting about Peter's statistics, because we we are getting 40% of the vote in local elections, which I suspect is more accurate than opinion polls, uh, and if we need 40 to 42%, we are on course. Very brief word from Peter. No, I wasn't going to pick up Ed's point. I just wanted to say, you know, somebody who's been a le- member of the Labour Party for 33 years, and uh, this will co- not come as any great surprise to people, I think, I think the Conservatives is a better and bigger brand than Peter says. But what I'd like to say, and I, and I mean this, I think it's really important that the Conservative Party does survive as a substantial brand because there will always be a need for a centre-right party. And if the Conservatives were to go the way that Peter expects and I think possibly rather relishes, um, I'm frightened as to what kind of right of centre politics would then spring up. I think it's one of the great virtues of British politics, partly due to our electoral system, partly due to the nature of the Conservative Party, that we've not had a substantial far-right nationalist xenophobic party in Britain and, uh, you know, and, and, a, and, a, and a substantial Conservative Party is our best bulwark against the kind of politics that I would think could become very nasty. Well, on that note, we're going to have to wrap up because we've run out of time. And I'm going to hand over to uh, Julia Hosborn to thank our speakers today. Well, thank you. And actually, before I thank the speakers, I'd like to thank Kirsty Lang. I think... Um, <laughs> When I asked Kirsty to chair this and she agreed, she forgot that she was due to be on air for BBC World until about one o'clock in the morning. So not that you would know it um, from this morning. She um, does, of course... uh, do a particularly good job this morning because she doesn't have the kind of lobby associations and vested interests um, of of being a a, a political beat uh, analyst herself. And um, so she is, of course, truly impartial, although apparently David Cameron is trying to send uh, one of his children to the highly desirable state school that her son Callum is at, and so she's probably a repository of an enormous amount of valuable gossip for those of us uh, networking like mad afterwards in the coffee. Um, Thank you all very much for coming. I think there is coffee afterwards and uh, we do have a rather illustrious group of guests here as well as the panel who you might want to talk to. But I would very much like to thank not only Kirsty Lang but also um, Simon Heffer, Peter Kellner, Nick Clegg, Shami Chakrabarti and Ed Vasey and you. Thank you.